This is Recovery Revolution Live. The episode you're about to listen to is live and unedited. If you'd like to join us on the live stream, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube. Facebook.com slash Recovery Revolution 100 or search Recovery Revolution Live on YouTube. What's up, guys? What is up? You did it. I did it. <laughs> Success, victory. Yay, take it early. Right? Yes. The most seamless I've done the introduction, which, and it wasn't seamless, but once it's I got perfect. it going, it was. It's so usually perfect. I forget to turn off the RRL logo full screen <laughs> before the video is done so instead of going to us it goes to the logo but i didn't i shut it off before i understand you rock jason you Thanks, man. rock brett is running late so i'm your uh, interim producer guy <laughs> <laughs> the co-host extraordinaire that's for sure and we have with us a special guest tonight, Peg O'Connor. Uh, sounds like LC did some uh, little stocking uh, research, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so why don't you introduce Peg? Oh, wow. Put me on. That's right. What's up? Well, let me tell you, I did do some YouTube stalking to find out who uh, yeah. Peg O'Connor was because Brett was so excited to share with us. And as soon as... I saw that Peg O'Connor is an author and a philosopher and has written this amazing new book. And, I, and I, I'm just going to let Peg tell all about it. But I'm super excited to be here because this is my jam. Peg is my jam. And I'm super Uh-oh. excited to have you. Thank you nope. so much. No pressure here. No None. Whatsoever. Thanks, Elsie. None. That is a warm welcome for that, sure. That, that welcome. Felt, that felt very warm. Welcome, Peg. Peg is oh. my fellow Minnesotan. That's right. I, I'm about <laughs> about probably 75 miles south of you. So watch out for the Minnesotans when we get together. We're in trouble. That's right. So I see uh, Elsie has passed the buck to me to introduce. That was That's very right. well done. That was very smooth putting it over onto me. Um, <laughs> so I'm Peg O'Connor, and I'm an, I'm an al- alcoholic, recovering alcoholic for a good long time. And I'm just tickled to be here. So Elsie said that I was a philosopher, and that is true. Please don't hold that against me. Um, I think philosophy has so much to offer people who struggle with addiction and other forms of suffering and with the possibilities for recovery, because philosophy has always grappled with questions about the meaning of life and making sense and identity and responsibility. I mean, that's all the bread and butter of philosophy. So I'm just grateful to, you know, get to bring philosophy to people struggling with addiction and recovery and to learn from people struggling with addiction and recovery. So, you know, I've been a professional philosopher for about 28 years now, and I can go to pointy headed academic conferences and, you know, hear lots of stuff that I don't understand. And I can go into rooms or connect up with other alcoholics and I hear some of the most philosophical questions and thoughtful responses that far outstrip what I hear in an academic conference. So, you know, what I, I what I just want to say is that I, I think addicts 
ask deep, meaningful questions because addiction is really a problem of living and trying to figure out how to not just survive, not just to live, but how even to flourish. And, and we get to do that work in recovery. I mean, how magnificent is that? Absolutely. I know when I went to college, I had, I took a philosophy class and I was super into it. Like I didn't think going into that, that it would have been that interesting, but it was like very, very great conversations, you know, and people sharing ideas, man, you know, like different ideas. And I liked that because a lot, you know, how often do you get to do that without it being like an argument or something? You know I mean? Oh, absolutely right. And, you know, what I found teaching for a good long time now is I think that a lot of so I teach at an undergraduate institution, a lot of 18 to 22 year olds really do want to have discussions, deep discussions, and they want to engage with these kinds of questions. And in my classes, we hardly use any technology and we discuss and we read and it's face to face and you know your um, peers' names and you build off what they say. All those skills that are getting lost or at least getting covered by so much having to do with technology and social media that I think people, young people today are hungry to learn skills that we who are older, I'll make no judgments about how old you all are, but that that was just part of being in school was you did those things and it's not so much anymore. So I'm a throwback. I'm, you know, set the way back machine. If you're a um, fractured fairy tales, um, Sherman and Mr. Peabody fan, um, set the way back because there's so much value in learning how to talk to people even or especially where you might disagree with them. Well, and I think it's, you know, you mentioned deep thinkers and, and people in recovery, and you think a lot of people use substances to to numb. And so deep thinking, sensitive, like those are traits that a lot of people in recovery or even in active addiction have. They numb so they don't have to feel because sometimes – when you think and you try to figure out the world, it's painful. Right. And when yeah. you get into recovery, now you're asking those questions because those are the same very questions that you were trying to avoid. Uh, yeah. For. Yeah. yeah. Or, you, or you answered them in some not productive kinds of ways. Right. right. And so now right. you've got the opportunity to hit the rewind button and maybe be able to understand what you were asking in the first place so that you can come up with new, different, or or better answers. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes me think of, like, an X-Man sort of a, a scenario. You know, like, when I was numbing pain and numbing trauma, I had no idea at that time that that was really going to be my superpower. And it was just so big and all of that was there that I couldn't handle it. So I would, you know, numb and try to escape. And, and it's like in recovery, I've come around to be able to believe and understand that it's like now I know how to use my power. Now mm -hmm. I know how to use this for, you know, to live a better life and to know I deserve it because that's that other part of that higher power sometimes question is, you know, we think that if we stay, remain guilty and low, then we make amends. That's how oh, we're yeah. making amends. And it's it's learning to harness that power of 
forgiveness and you know I, I don't know that's just what it seems like to me and i just i think our greatest minds are in recovery rooms and in recovery programs because you're right peg this is what we do i mean to live a better healthier life these are the things that we have to you know do and move towards right. and especially if you're trying to help other people mm -hmm. uh, find recovery whatever that looks like for them uh you're definitely you know faced with that trying to help them find purpose and meaning in their own life uh so i think it's changing all the time like what we're learning about those questions anyway because mm -hmm. what it what that looks like for me is probably different than what it looks like for you and it's awesome to see those lights come on in people and and the various ways that happens it's just it, it never ceases to blow my mind. Oh, I, I think that's right. And to either have fires ignited for the first time ever, you know, to have never, you know, maybe if you started drinking or using really early on, you know, where you never got the chance to develop as a thinker or as a, as a feeler, as a social person. Mm -hmm. And then to realize well, that's what you can start to do in recovery. And that's what we do for each other. I mean, we share the commitment to helping each other try to stay sober. So there's feeling these things anew or you've lost them through your addiction. And then when you get them back and oftentimes when you recover something, when something returns to you, you fully understand the value because you know what it's like to live without it. And you think, well, yeah. I, I never want to do that again. And, mm. and that's, I think what keeps a lot of us going. We don't want to go back because we've, we've lived that way and we see that we weren't living fully, you know, that mm -hmm. we were only partially living or that our drug and alcohol use or engaging in other addictive behaviors that that really burned at our center. And it made us lose other things that are so important to us, but we, we don't even recognize it. So the philosopher Kierkegaard, one of my favorites, so kind of melancholic Danish philosopher in the mid-1800s, um, he said that the greatest hazard of all, losing the self, can happen so quietly that you never notice it. Mm. So you'd notice if you lost $5, he said. You'd notice if you lost a wife, but you don't notice that you have lost yourself. Yeah. And, mm. and that's one way to understand addiction. For, yeah. for many of us, and the trajectory might vary depending upon how old we were when mm. we started, but sort of we all land at that same point of we've lost ourselves because we've lost self-trust mm. and what we think we know about ourselves. We think we've got you know the, the perfect perspective on ourselves, and what we know about ourselves is it's all bad or awful. You know, I'm just a yeah. total loser. I'm a screw up. I use right. people. I you know I waste opportunities. We think we've got the full 360 view of ourselves, and it's so partial and it's so incomplete. But for us, it feels like, well, this is the truth of us. Mm -hmm. So we lose self-trust. We lose self-knowledge. And the one thing that we can't ever do is forgive ourselves, particularly when we're actively using, because we keep kind of putting all of our mistakes and our misdemeanors on the plate of the scale. And that boom, mm -hmm. that arm just keeps slamming down because all the weight is on the side of I'm just a dirty, rotten, stinking loser, screw up embarrassment to my family. Oh, my gosh. You know what blew my mind when I first started in this process was when I learned that 
that self-loathing is an extreme version of self-centeredness because mm-hmm. it, it didn't feel like it. It felt like I was like a piece of shit, right? It didn't feel good. like I, I guess I would have thought that self-centeredness would be like ego or like I'm better than other people, but it was the opposite. And like, apparently that's even worse ego. <laughs> that's crazy. Well, I think it's kind of masquerading or it's it's deeply undercover yeah. because I, I know for I like me, as word, my yeah. addiction progressed, I pulled more and more into myself that my world kept shrinking. So that really was all about me and my colossal screw ups. I mean, my deeply embattled, you know, that I disappointed my my parents and that not a good sister and I was wasting educational opportunity. I had no career, you know, it was sort of me, 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 me in part because I was no longer capable of imagining anything different or better. The only thing I could imagine was how things were going to get worse. Yeah. And even then I could surprise myself Mm -hmm. by how they got worse. Yeah. fact, Fact can be stranger than fiction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. (laughs) <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. It it it, it becomes like this oh uh, this 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 never ending path of almost enlightenment as we go further into, you know, the the battles of addiction and how it does come back to self-loathing and and so much and um and I think that 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 the way you're talking about this is such a natural progression and a natural step that that almost anybody, regardless of what maybe what phase you're in from, you know, beginning to, you know, to years on down the line can gain, you know, it can understand it and 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 wisdom of what's being said, because I think that you talked about that, Jason, and one of the biggest freedoms that that. I found was also kind of in that and that there that I could write a different story that no matter how much I believe that's why I was always believed it just it just takes a spark of hope like you just have to see a flicker of the room to know that it's not total darkness and there's something else over there and it doesn't even take that much and so you know you know it's just a natural step of healing that you that that we're talking about just dude i'm natural. starting to get pumped already because i can feel that this is just going to get super deep tonight and i like that <laughs> like let's really like work those brain muscles you know and yeah i love that so you're you you said you've been a teacher of philosophy for how long i, I think 27 years i try not to do the math i think <laughs> i want to okay. maintain willful ignorance on how many years i've been teaching but <laughs> Uh, it's more than that because I started full time in 1995. Okay. So yeah, it's a long. But time. it's great. It's it, it's it's wonderful because I am always surrounded by young people, 18 mm. to 22 year olds, and I was just having this discussion in one of my classes where there are so few spaces and opportunities for different generations to meet. You know, we really do yeah. live in a society that's segregated by age. <laughs> Mm. And that that's very unfortunate because I think different generations have so much to offer each other. And I know that we live in a culture that is terrified of aging and we're terrified of old people because we know we're going to get old. And, and we are so shortchanging ourselves from 
engagement with them and what we might get in terms of learning from them. And the other way around too, I mean, I can't tell you how many people ask me, you know, so what do you think of this new generation of students? They come in with all these stereotypes about Gen Z students. Oh, they're lazy. They're entitled. They want everything without working. And it's like, oh my gosh, you really don't know them at all. You know, if you spend any time with them, you realize they have very legitimate concerns about sort of the status of the planet. They're deeply worried about financial manners. And, and I have students who are working full-time and going to school full-time. They are doing things that back when public education was better funded, students didn't have to work as many hours or as many jobs. And a good summer job, a good summer job now might not even cover the cost of your books. So, and, and these students are the ones who have gone through all of their education with active shooter drills. I mean, I'm going to look at you, Elsie, and say, you know, you and I were probably stop dropping and rolling yeah. and we were covering yep. our heads from yep. the nuclear bombs from the Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. Well, how old you know, do you think I am? Well, I can't tell because you have a hat on. So I'm just... it's, I got a bald spot back in the yeah, back, yeah. but you can't tell from the front. So I okay. like looking at myself in the mirror. There you go. I pretend that I'm not going bald. <laughs> what about me? You can see me. I don't have a hat. Well, okay. So I'm, I'm going to out myself here. I'm, I'm 57. So um, I'm 49. Okay. 49 this year. 43, almost. Yeah. I'm 38. Okay. So Perf. clearly I'm the elder states woman here. But I mean, <laughs> And students are struggling with mental health issues in ways that I have never seen before. Mm. We, ha we have, and this is true across higher education, so I'm not saying anything particular about my school, but I see so many students who come in with dual diagnoses, depression and anxiety, uh, ADHD, we're seeing more bipolarism, more borderline personality disorder. And, and faculty tend to be some of the most regular sustained contact that we have with students. And so I ended up buying the short abridged version of the DSM-5, so the Psychiatric Dictionary of Mental Illnesses, to figure out how does this manifest with, with students in our classes? Because I, the students who are really struggling are really, really struggling. And on college campuses, you know, the students who are drinking are drinking more and in more dangerous ways. And a lot of them are smoking pot, you know, marijuana, cannabis, I guess we're supposed to call it now, enjoys a reputation of being, you know, harmless or not as bad. And wow, I, eh, to try to point that out to students that, well, given where your brain is developmentally, if you're going to start smoking pot, please wait until you're over the age of 25. Um, and a lot of them say, but I do it for my anxiety. It's like, well, actually, it's probably going to contribute. So, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by, by young people who are struggling in all these kinds of ways. And that's one of the ways it, it stays real for me. Mm. Um, and students are dealing with a lot of trauma. I'm teaching a special topics class on philosophy and trauma. And that class filled up about on the second night of registration. Wow. 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 So our students, our, our, our young people are carrying such heavy, heavy loads. So it's no surprise that, you know, in certain demographics, we see addiction rates just really accelerating. 
It's mm-hmm. not surprising. Right. Wow. wow. Well, and I think a lot of people think, you know, COVID was the reason. And, and that just maybe accelerated it. But mm-hmm. if you think back to, like, I'll, I'll go back to my childhood. I was, you know, in in school, I think, um, so September 11th was when I was in ninth grade. Columbine, I think, was when I was in eighth grade. Um, so school used to be the place you went that you were safe. And then, you know, your neighbor, like when I was in middle school, you started to be able to look online and find out the sexual predators in your area and you were able to see how many were there. So instead of going outside and playing, parents kept their kids inside and then you started to, you know, you still did recreational sports and you'd go play, but it was all planned and scheduled. So if you think about starting at that age, you know, your ability to be on your own and get back home, you know, when it's dark and just those simple things that you don't think about aren't being taught. And then people are scared to go in their neighborhood. They're scared to go to school. And is it any wonder why as that time goes on and those people become parents that they, they pass those fears on and those traumas and those anxieties on. And, and it's just, you know, as we be, become more fearful of everything around us, it's going to continue to get worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I'm so grateful for this insight. You know, I have a 23 year old son and, you know, I, he's always been my whole world, you know, my mm-hmm. reason for, I used him as my reason to get into recovery really changed because I wanted to teach him wow. that you can change anything at any time and never give up on yourself. And, mm-hmm. and I see all of these things that, that both of you are talking about, you know, in him and just having a conversation like this helps me see it in a whole different way you know because it's it's easy as parents to think what what do these kids have to worry about you know and it's you're so right you're right they have a lot and a lot's gone on and and just listening to ashley talk how different it was in my childhood where we did not stay inside i mean i remember i think my generation was the first where working moms single working moms it was a big single working mom thing and so you know, I was, we had started being independent and getting yourself home on time and, and all of that stuff. But the rest, you know, yeah, we had hurricane drills and, you know, fire drills and, and, but the rest of that stuff, you know, I, I just could have never had the opportunity to see it from a different level or a different side without having conversations like this that mean something. Yeah. And, and there's Great. that intergenerational component though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so how much is lost because people of different age brackets aren't talking to each other? Absolutely. And, you know, it's really different worrying about a hurricane than it is someone's coming into a classroom. With, right. You know. Yeah. With a yeah. semi-automatic weapon that really should only be in the military. Right. right. So, I mean, just all those kinds of fears. And I, and I think Ashley's right. I mean, I think those there's this wonderful concept from an American writer in the mid, I'm going to say mid 19th century. His name is Horace Fletcher. He was part of the mind cure movement, which is going to morph into Christian science. But before that, he talked about fear becomes the dominant feature 
for a lot of people in their lives. And he says, forethought, which is being circumspect and being planful, you know, thinking in advance, you know, looking at, oh, if I do this act, here are the three consequences. If I do that act, there are these other consequences. He says, fear starts to overwhelm forethought. And it creates, I love this expression, fear thought. Mm. That your thinking begins in fear and tends to lead to greater fears. Right. And fear is the opposite of optimism or of hope. So I, I think to go back to you know this question about addiction, where many people drink to numb, I think many people drink to try to manage fears and anxieties. And that might be an adaptive strategy for all of about two minutes or for a very short amount of time, but it quickly becomes maladaptive. And so that, that fear thought is the accelerance in developing an addiction, I think. And so then everything, you know, where you can imagine possibilities, you become a savant, you become an, a, a world-class champion in imagining the worst case scenarios that that fear thought just now pushes your imagination only in one direction. And that's always the worst case scenario. And so if you can't imagine things being better, you can't hope for what you can't imagine. And that's one of, you know, the casualties of addiction is that it fundamentally squashes Mm. our abilities to imagine and hope in ways that are positive, you know, to, to have positive visions that you, you long to meet. I mean, they'll, most people might start to think, well, that's just ridiculous. Someone like me could never do that. That's just a Mm -hmm. stupid waste of time. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's going to keep us. Yeah. Yeah. And they did a study and they, they presented the results to clinicians and they asked them what diagnosis you know, they should be most concerned about for suicide, oh. for risk of suicide. Yeah. What diagnosis do you think it is? Uh, I don't know. Do we have candidates? Can this be multiple choice? Sure. Okay. A is depression. Um, B is substance use disorder. C is anxiety. And D is PTSD. Is E all of the above an option? <laughs> no, it's one diagnosis. That's the biggest risk for let's make Brett answer disorder are two times as likely to die by suicide than the typical person but actually anxiety is the one that's proven to be the riskiest yeah that's what i was thinking powerful motivator and people that are depressed tend to not have the motivation to plan or to you know take action as much um so anxiety is the one that they tell clinicians and I and I think that's right. And anxiety is a is an older concept than psychology. So anxiety is originally a philosophical concept that comes out of the philosopher Kierkegaard, who talks about anxiety is a fundamental imbalance within a person. It's it's an imbalance between um gosh, what's the way to put this? He thinks it's a spiritual imbalance in a kind of way. And 
anxiety, you know, gets picked up by psychology and, and it's anxiety is kind of a whole world view for somebody like Kierkegaard. It's a living attitude. It's a way of being in the world. And now we talk about it as this diagnosis, which in some ways I think doesn't get at the complexity in which anxiety is just going to run through so many of our life's activities and the ways in which anxiety is also, I think, a gendered diagnosis as well. I mean, aren't they, aren't more girls or women diagnosed with anxiety than men? And I'm not sure whether that's because there might be more shame for men with a diagnosis of anxiety or depression, or whether girls and women are doing a lot of the kind of social and emotional labor that is the the fertilizer for anxiety growing in certain kinds of ways. I don't know. But what anecdotally I see is I see so many more young women diagnosed with anxiety than young men. So, I mean, I'm curious, Ashley, what do you think? I think that it might be the way it presents, just like ADHD is harder to diagnose in women because it's mm-hmm. it doesn't look the same. I think that if you think, you know, I live in Florida and and we're a little more conservative and a little bit behind some of the other, you know, states. And so, you know, men take on the role of having to support the family or in construction, like say mm-hmm. construction industry, the, the males put so much pressure on themselves and then they have to be the, the man of the family and they have to be tough and they can't struggle. So they might not show that they're anxious the same way a woman mm-hmm. would, but I don't think that it's less common in men. Yeah. I mean, I fe- I fear that's probably right. I'm not, I didn't think there was a better or worse answer. Like, what would be better? Um, but it just seems that paying attention to these diagnoses and even how they're understood and then how they manifest is important, particularly as it relates to addiction, because I think there are so many gendered dimensions to addiction that kind of travel underneath the surface unless you pay enough attention to them. Mm. I think think Pamela really raised a strong point here. She said the thing about being diagnosed is just that more women are going for help. So it's like, that's just what we know about. (laughs) Right. Uh, So I mean, if you think about, if you look at different industries, um, some of these male-dominated industries have very high rates of suicide. Um, so I think it's it probably is what she's saying. They're not going for help or it manifests differently. Um, men tend to talk less than women. Women, women mm-hmm. do, like, this is, I'm not trying to put anybody in a box. I'm just saying generally, you know, we will talk about things. Or even with our friends, we get a little deeper than sometimes guys do. So maybe it's able to be, you know, if if your friend says, hey, maybe you should go see someone. It sounds like you're having some anxiety. Well, I might not say that to his friend. I'll tell you this. I have generalized anxiety disorder and I'm not ashamed of it. You're awesome, though. You're just awesome, man. Yeah. Well, here's here's what I, I get to kind of understand about all of this is being on both sides of gender. I can tell there's a very significant difference in in feelings 
pre my transition testosterone and there was a different way of expressing that there was it was completely different mm -hmm. and, I, and i've noticed that during transition and as my body takes on you know more testosterone i have found myself carrying more of a load without saying anything and there just becomes this place that you stay at you know, when you are, you know, as supporting the family and there's just a way that you kind of, there's just this level that you kind of stay at on that male side. And you're, I think that you're making a valid point in that it doesn't present the same because mm -hmm. I think some men don't even realize they are living under pure anxiety in pure oh. survival mode too. And I think that yeah, everything, the, the issue with all of it is everything we've said here tonight is a contributing factor, you know, like it's, there's so many like, mm -hmm. you know, tentacles to this thing. But, but I just wanted to throw in that, that, that there's definitely a difference hormonally. Cause I can say for me from a pure place that it's not, you know, I, I wasn't raised in this certain way. Now I was raised watching the men in my family, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I don't know if some of yeah. that came as well, but I just have seen it be a gradual change in that. And I think that it's valuable for, for men, you know, who are out there and supporting families with young families to start checking in with their bodies, just, you know, at different times of the day, kind of just stop and check in with yourself on, you know, where are you? Because so many times in the middle of that work day, you just, you're so tight thinking about everything and that's pure anxiety. You're thinking about the bills and am I going to make enough this week? And is my body going to hold up to, to this week's pressure and, and all of the things, you know, that I think that if men would begin to sometimes just check in with themselves, you know, and just say, mm -hmm. Hey, where am I? And take that breath and, and give yourself that moment. It's tough over time. I find this fascinating that you are in the unique position where you can actually speak to both genders mm -hmm. and their experience. It's, it's quite fascinating. I didn't expect <laughs> I didn't expect it to be this different. There are some things that I kind of miss. There are some things about mm -hmm. the ability to relate on certain levels that I have to try harder now to do. There's a, a difference in, you know, in, in empathy and the, you know, the, the willingness that I run towards vulnerability and I don't have to, you know, now it's more of a conscious effort, you know, yeah. it's probably why I'm so vulnerable just because I just want to make a conscious effort. Well, and that's the thing too, dude, that's key because even now, you know, I'm almost seven years clean. It's like still I can feel that it's going against my instincts to to hold myself accountable to be out there with my emotions right like i need to push through that and do it anyway mm -hmm. unless i want to cheat myself right yeah and, that's, that's and i found yeah. yeah i found that if i do those things that i'm in a better place you know spiritually just in general uh, in a much better place. So, you know, you have to be willing to get uncomfortable. You know, I think it's important to note too, that a lot of people think if they go and get help 
or they go and talk to someone, then that means they have to take medication. And, and there's nothing wrong with taking medication if that's what you need to do. But there's also, especially anxiety, there's a lot of things that you can do where medication might not be even mm -hmm. needed. I mean, 30 days of mindfulness shows to have the same results as benzos, so like for anxiety. So it might just be practices that you put into your, your life to help. And, and if, if you go and look for those solutions and talk to somebody, you might be able to find those things. So I think, yeah, I, I think it gets really interesting too, that sort of who's prescribing most of the psychiatric medications are not psychiatrists, mm. but they're general practitioners or their emergency department physicians. And both of those groups will say, we're, we're not the experts here, but these are their patients who come in. And what's really tough, you know, with the emergency department kind of functioning as the primary care for so many people. I mean, we're seeing the acute mental health crises in young people where parents who are just absolutely at their wits ends or they're terrified are going to EDs and getting psychiatric medications. But the follow-up treatment rates are so low. So those kinds of other practices and treatment modalities that Ashley's referencing, most people probably don't even know they exist or wouldn't even know where to begin how to tap into them. And then there's the whole question of, well, how do you, you pay for these things? And, you know, psychiatry is at an interesting point. I mean, the history of psychiatry is fascinating because for so long it was dominated by Freudian psychoanalysis. And it wasn't until you start hitting the 70s and 80s that you've got the rise of pharmacology. So the first line treatment is medication now where other treatment modalities are ancillary. Instead of before, it was, you know, talk therapy, you know, different kinds of behavioral management, anger management, behavior modification. And now all of that is kind of secondary. And so, you know, thinking about the role of these heavy duty pharmaceuticals in everyday life for everyone, we are a highly medicated society. And that's not to slam the medications because some of them are very good and work to very good effect. But you really do have to be so proactive and have a quarterback of, of your mental health plan. And that's a lot of what's missing in the U.S. healthcare system. And then you layer on a substance disorder with that, either as cause or consequence. And then you've got this complicated you've got this complicated situation where it isn't really clear where you should start. Yeah. And you know, what medications do you continue? Do you add meds? Do you take away meds? And some meds have a very long, um, you know, weaning process that you want to, mm. you want to be very careful how you go off them and yes. all these complexities. And here we are people in the world, just sometimes trying to get by muddling along is the victory. Mm. Well, the sad thing is, is the quality of care, like kind of what you're saying, it's people are going to the emergency room and they're not getting quality psychiatric care, not because people are not wanting to give it to them, but just lack of access or lack of knowing where to go. And I mean, the research is amazing. Like there's a book called Healing um, by Dr. Inzel. And I mean, if you look at this stuff there, the medications for schizophrenia, 
are more effective than heartburn medication. It it's more, less people react to heartburn medication than react to, to this one medication for schizophrenia. Like he shows it in his book, the different medications, but how many people are going to a psychiatrist that really can diagnose that, that knows it early enough and who can tell their symptoms in a way that the doctor would even right. understand. Cause when you're yeah. in a crisis, yeah. It always makes sense on what's going on and Yeah, I know a lot of people that literally can't like even bring forth enough energy to like try to describe cuz they feel so insecure about their ability to like articulate their feelings, you know. It's tough. I remember I I talk about this a lot, but when I first got into recovery and I was like I talked to the doctor and I was like I don't know if it's depression or if it's I have bipolar. I feel like sometimes my brain is overactive, but I'm, I'm not like manic. And she's like, well, I'm going to give you this medication and you'll know in about a week, if you have mania, then you've got bipolar. And if you don't, then it's depression. Mm. And I'm like, okay, so that's how we do this, huh? <laughs> that's how, you know, mm. SSRIs tend to cause mania in people with bipolar disorder. And so I didn't end up manic. So they're like, okay, that's not it. But that's kind of the the trial and error part of life. But yeah, if any of you have ever seen anyone in a, a manic episode, it's to put someone in that just as a trial. Mm. Not cool. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's a necessary evil they call that. Well, I know that my wife, when she came into recovery wanted to wanted to not be on dope anymore but she had no idea how to even begin to start to unravel you know the deeper roots to that and and as she kept going back to the doctor you know it was you know i need help with depression my mind won't stop at night and before it was over with at the peak of these this seven year period where my wife was just a shell of a human being like every night i'd go to bed i'd be afraid she was going to die in her sleep and we Mm. weren't sleeping together at the time and i was afraid i wasn't going to be there i mean Mm. she was so medicated that she could not sit down and have a conversation because she would fall right asleep. Her legs were swollen to the point that they were purple all of the time. And here's this, you know, this woman, and she's just trying to not feel depressed, just trying to not feel this. And they, and she just took what they gave her. And at one point I, I, I counted 13 of the 23 medications all cause drowsiness. Wow. And it was no wonder that my wife would fall asleep doing the dishes. And, you know, so, and it wasn't until she, one of the side effects, you know, gave her Seroquel, high doses of Seroquel oh. over time, damaged her heart. And she had this slight heart attack, which completely brought her back to herself and and to us as her family because she knew that it was these this this lifestyle over time and she didn't want to die and that was her moment you know Mm -hmm. that that moment that almost broke her became the moment that helped her you know come completely off of all of those medications and you know it's only been 
January of 2020 is when she had the heart episode. And, you know, I watch her struggle sometimes still, but I see her taking such an active and proactive approach into her own mental health and her own health care as a whole that at least I know, you know, she's more than likely going to be there when I wake up in the morning now thank god for that thank god I know. for that moment i know mm-hmm. i know but the medication was ridiculous I mean, it's oh. so hard for all of us to challenge medical authority though i know i get I know. in the doctor's office and it's like i can't say anything when yeah. you know just did this do that you need this or i'm like okay 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 in just about any other area of my life i would stand up for myself and and push back and be an advocate for myself and right. i i just become like okay just drive over me oh you want to back over me again <laughs> i mean i just i just do it and i, I feel wow. like i need to have someone to come in and be my advocate because it's so hard for any one of us to do it on our own when we're sitting there in those little johnnies mm-hmm. and just feeling so vulnerable and scared anyway and well so, i think yeah, it- you get if all these I, medications. You don't know what the hell they do, but you think, oh, I'm supposed to take them. Right. If I go to a doctor, which is rare, go figure. Uh, <laughs> but when I do, I'm, I'm seeking answers. And I think that I just only can speak for myself, but maybe it's like this trust thing. You know, it's like they're, do- they're a doctor. They're the doctor, right? Like. They, they'll be able to tell me what's going on and they can fix it. You know, like that's why you go. So I think we just assume that they have done their due diligence and, and that they know what's really going on or, you know, like, like we just have this like immediate like trust or something. I don't know if that makes sense. And that's something they're working on actually at a federal level. They're trying to integrate peers into primary care. And, and then they're also trying to integrate it into where there's already integration with pi- primary care and behavioral health, so like community behavioral health centers and stuff like that. Um, so that would maybe help in these situations because they would talk to you before you visit. They would go with you to see the doctor because they would be able to tell them, you know, get to know you a little better and your symptoms. But just having that person there that, you know, has been you know, through a mental health struggle or a substance use struggle. So they know what it feels like to be in that seat, you know, there to support. I think that would go a long way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, it's tough. So um, I don't know. I hurt my back, hurt my hip, hurt something badly and ended up in the doctor's office and he prescribed muscle relaxants. And I said, well, you know, I, I am in recovery. I'm not sure I really want to be taking these. He said, oh, just don't abuse them. It's like, now what part? <laughs> Sorry. You know, so I, t- I took one because spasming badly and, you know, sudden. And then the next day I took a second one and I thought, no, I like this because I felt almost like there was this shimmering little veil between me and reality. And it was shimmering nicely. Now I was on the other side and I thought, oh, no, you don't. But, you know, my physician was not going to help me, even though I, you know, I kind of stood up for myself. I mean, so then it becomes, you know, do you have friends that say to you, no, Peg, you don't want to be taking those or, you know, why are you taking those? I mean, it shouldn't be a matter of luck in healthcare 
that we have physicians who understand addiction. And yes. I think a goodly number do, but some still have that attitude of, well, just like mine, well, just don't abuse them. <laughs> okay. You know, so very smart people, which doctors are, they, they're very, very smart. They go to school for a long time, are, are more analytical. And sometimes they don't have the best soft skills in, in linking to that empathy and being able to understand, not that they're not great people, but they're just more of those analytical minds, like where you get like social workers and therapists that are, that are better with those soft skills and recognize those things. I think it's almost like a personality difference on if you could put a, a therapist and a doctor together, right. like the perfect person because they it's would like empathize. Friday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So true. I, I think that there's a lot Hi, to there's a lot of benefits that come from having that kind of a well-rounded uh, care team as opposed to one one person, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they should be intimately like connected or you know like working together closely because I know like it's completely uh, different kind of path or whatever from what we're talking about. But like when my mom was going through her cancer, she had you know, all these different doctors and they were never on the same page. You know, it's like, why can't they work together? And then I think it would have been great if, if there was like peers around who had been through or were currently going through uh, the same thing. But then I don't know, it's maybe it could have helped her stay more hopeful or something. And I think we forget so we can have this care team that's great. And you can have somebody that's specialties here, and you can have someone that's specialties here. Then you sometimes when they're so specialized, you get these gaps. And having somebody that's not clinical as part of the team to be able to fill in those gaps is really, really important. Because you may be treating a medical condition, but ultimately you're treating a person. And medical condition and person are two very different kinds of things. So, I mean, yes, I appreciate, I appreciate specialized medical care and those who could, you know, operate on some tiny little important organ like the brain. Yay. But to also understand that you're just not treating the brain, you're treating the person. Right. And it seems yeah. one of those statements that's so obvious. I can't believe I just uttered it, but I, it does have to be uttered or that it's going to blow people's minds to hear sometimes because it's like, ha, oh, that's genius. Yeah. Well, it should be common sense. <laughs> well, yeah. Centered care is supposed to be the model that right. you get. And that's definitely not the model we have right now. Yeah. And we also, well, we're getting to learn more and more how our emotional and internal life affects our physical life and our physical well-being. And, you know, I think that if the body and the mind and all of that is one, then it, then it would be great if it was more one. Because I just always trusted that, you know, doctors were communicating with each other. And it does seem like that, Jason, until somebody gets, you know, your family kind of gets sick, you think, well, why aren't, why isn't everybody working together? I just thought that would naturally be the way it would go. Like I see this as a person who has four different doctors. It would behoove everyone, you know, to, to, 
talk to everyone. The body's so connected. But it's amazing how it doesn't happen that way. Well, and I think technology gets in the way at times because Mm. all of our records can go into that one thing that I dread more than anything, the portal. When a physician or nurse says to me, oh, well, you can get access to this information through the portal. I think, (laughs) oh, shit. You know, it's not going to work. And we assume, though, that because the information, well, we assume, one, that all the information is there. And the second assumption is that they actually read it and then look across and see. Because where where I have found just terrible things happening is with um, prescriptions, where you've got one physician writing the prescription for this and another writing it for that. And if you don't have a good pharmacist who raises a flag and says, you know, these things are contraindicated or, you know, with with my mother, they put her on a medication that should never, will never be given to anyone over the age of 65 who has heart problems or has, you know, peripheral neuropathy. Well, they put her on this and she was out where the buses don't run after one pill. And it was the pharmacist who's like, she never should have been given this. So there's just so many places where things can go wrong. And and I think then you layer on the the complexities of addiction as a medical condition as well. I mean, you know, we, we see it as, you know, yes, it's this kind of disorder, but it's a medical condition of what is happening with our guts, what's happening with our brain, what is happening with our nervous system. I mean, everything. Yeah. It, it is all connected. So that maybe just goes back to Ashley's point about kind of a holistic person-centered yeah. approach. Yeah. Um, but as we talk more and more, addiction is a brain disease, which has been part of the language of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. As a brain disease, it's like, eh, I, Peg O'Connor, am not an addicted brain. I, Peg O'Connor, and I'm an addicted person. And they're two radically different things, to come back to that statement Amen. of the obvious and again. There's this new model that comes with, you know, so it used to be addiction was a choice. And then it moved to addiction was a disease. And now it's more, and and a lot of people's, it's not everybody, but, you know, addiction is a a maladaptive coping mechanism for, and to me that, that fits for me personally better that I use substances as a coping mechanism because you use a behavior that works right well they they were the solution Mm -hmm. right Right. i i say it all the time when i share my story that drugs probably saved my life you know for for a time when Mm -hmm. i was younger and then you know that they stopped being fun and it took a weird turn and things got strange (laughs) 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 and uh they just got worse from there so I mean, nobody tells you when they're like, here, this will help. Try this. Nobody tells you that that shit's going to stop working down the road. Mm-hmm. It's going to make you get really twisted and weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, other, the other thing to think about is, have you ever like seen someone that's having bad stomach problems? They're throwing up. They're having, you know diarrhea they're having stomach cramps and they swear that there's something wrong with their stomach they go to the doctor you know there's nothing wrong with their stomach they go to the next doctor this one must have missed something something's wrong with my stomach 
And it turns out it was anxiety or headaches. People start getting headaches all the time, real bad migraines. We think mm-hmm. something's wrong, you know, and, and something is wrong. I'm not saying it's not, but it, you know, that can be stress. That can be lots of things. Yeah. Well, and in senior populations too, the ways in which alcohol can wreak such havoc on seniors because of metabolism, body composition, what it can do to blood. So seniors who are on, say, Coumadin, a blood thinner, and they're drinking a lot, that could cause a lot of problems. Or or seniors are having trouble cognitively functioning the same way. It's tempting to write it out. Well, that's just aging. Well, you know, drinking a half bottle or a bottle of wine every night or several drinks. So maybe that does come down to... Again, being back in that doctor's office and how many of us would want to fess up? Well, this is exactly how much we're drinking because we all underestimated what we were drinking or using when we were doing it. And I think with with older people, there's even greater shame. And what we're seeing is it's a lot of older women who are starting to drink in troubling ways. And so the way they talk about drinking in senior populations is the same language they use in talking about drinking in college students. They talk about high risk drinking Mm -hmm. and that, you know, high risk drinking doesn't mean, oh, you're going to become an alcoholic. It means you're drinking in ways that pose risk to your physical or your mental health. You know, what it does to your balance, what it does to your eyesight, what it does to your cognitive function. And, you know, having those conversations with our seniors is incredibly hard for physicians and for anyone else who works with them. But, you know, there's a fair amount of alcohol consumption in those older populations. It's deeply worrisome. Mm, There's these two Mm. substances, alcohol and marijuana, that people think are are safe because, you know, alcohol is legal and marijuana is legal in a lot of places or or there's a medical Mm -hmm. card. And and it's actually... The deaths related to alcohol have skyrocketed. Skyrocketed over a hundred thousand. Yep. Yep. We talk about the opiate crisis. The alcohol crisis is very, very troubling. And then marijuana is causing people to have psychosis um, because there's more THC than ever before, and the younger brains. It's like a lot of kids that are in these first episode psychosis units. I'm calling them kids, but they're like. 18 to 25 adults yeah Mm -hmm. they're having psychosis because of you know people that have mental health conditions are more susceptible to psychosis with marijuana but does anybody tell them that when they get a card Mm -mm. nope Mm. nope and you don't even have to have a specific diagnosis or anything that's provable to get those cards you can just go in and say something super vague like i have really bad anxiety or i have chronic pain and they will give you a card (laughs) you know what i mean like my ex-wife god rest her soul i remember when she moved to california and she was pining over me for a couple years she kept she would call once in a while she wanted me to come down there she's like oh because she started like a massage therapy practice and she was like i can get i got the hookup like i can get she's like it's super easy to get the card and then she's like i trade services with this dispensary in my strip mall and all this and that and i'm like no i'm good (laughs) like the damage was done you know it's over we did the whole deal like let's move on yeah 
<laughs> well, I also heard they're telling people that are on parole and stuff, well, go get a medical card because then if you, you, you know, test yeah. positive. It's um, all good. Right. So that's what their, their recommendation is. And, and how many people with mental health conditions are in jails and prisons? That's right. like the biggest provider for mental health services in the country. So mm-hmm. you're giving this population telling them to go get this card that could cause psychosis. It's absurd to me. Right. And, and then all the different things, the different ways, like the, those waxes and the, and the oils and stuff. Like, yeah. Holy shit, man. I mean, How potent they are. I yeah. Mean, they really nothing yeah. like I was smoking when I was, you know, right. 18 or 20. Right. Oh, ma'am. It was like 3% right. THC back in the day. And, and now it's like, it can be in the 90s in some of those concentrates. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> That's nuts. So I really want to take a moment, Peg. I want to shift gears here because oh, you, okay. you're author, you are an author of a book. And uh, I want you to tell us about that and uh, the the inspiration behind it and maybe what, what was it like writing it. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about your book for a while. Well, that's kind of you. So this book that they're so kindly referencing, is called Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. And it is a book that comes from an itch that I wanted to scratch for about 38 years. So when I was a sophomore in college, I went to my first AA meeting. And as soon as I heard the language of God, I pretty much wanted to run out as if my pants were on fire. And (laughs) I always struggled with the notion of higher power in recovery. And I really didn't start going to any AA meetings until I had been sober 19 years because I realized I needed to do some things differently in my sobriety. So one of my mantras is always, you need to be flexible and nimble in your recovery or sobriety. You know, you can't be dogmatic about it because one thing has worked before. It doesn't guarantee that it will work in the future. And so this book really grew out of a reference that I read of Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, referring to William James, an American philosopher, as a co-founder of AA, even though James had died 25 years before Bill Wilson had his conversion experience in, in 1934. So I got interested in that question and wanted to figure out, well, what exactly does that mean? And so in researching this, Bill Wilson read one of James's greatest books, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is all about the ways that spiritual impulses are part of human nature and they burn at the center of some people. And in that book, Varieties, James chronicles about five stories of people who had a conversion like Bill Wilson did, where suddenly his desire to drink was lifted by what he understood to be a god. And so Bill Wilson read that book shortly after he had his own experience. And higher power is a term that comes from William James, except Bill Wilson didn't get it right, uh, according to James, that there were higher and friendly powers in the plural. And that William James says anything larger will do if it'll help you to take the next step to transform yourself. So it could be something like ideals of truth or beauty. It could be enthusiasm for humanity, moral principles, a sense of something more or something divine, or it can even be a better version of yourself. And that higher power doesn't do anything to you, but it enables you 
to do things. So each of us can author his, her, or their own conversion by drawing on resources from within. Or if you do happen to believe in a God of the sort that Wilson seems to have in the back of his mind, having been raised in a Calvinist tradition in Vermont, that people can make great changes in their lives. And we see that all the time. And the other inspiration was really wanting to challenge the view that everyone has to have one of those big, huge, sudden tsunami-like conversions. Because William James says, conversions happen all the time, gradually and slowly. And people make different choices and they end up changing what burns at their center. Uh, no less so than people who have those big experiences. So my hope was to write a book that people who don't believe in a Christian-centric God could maybe find something really interesting and useful in terms of thinking about perhaps living in recovery, and that those people who love AA could learn more about someone whom Bill Wilson regarded as a co-founder. So I know that that is a needle with a very small eye to thread. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that I have. And I also just think that William James is a wonderful companion chronicling all kinds of different kinds of suffering because he himself suffered greatly and the possibilities for what he calls regeneration or rejuvenation, transformation, that each yeah. of us can become a new person. So that's yeah. that's what was going on behind the book. Well, that sounds wonderful. Standing. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. I, I, I'm intrigued. I want to read some of this guy's work. I, I think maybe you've heard of him. I don't know. Sure. I haven't, but I definitely can't wait because – I I think I, I just thank you for writing this book. You know, I, I just thought coming in, what am I going to do? You know, I can't do the 12 step, you know, how am I going to do this? You know, what am I going to do? And it was that, you know, that aversion, that very traumatic relationship that we were talking about before we started the show is that traumatic relationship between you and your perception of the God that you've grown up as your perception and there's just mm -hmm. so much different there's so much more to you there is so much more to everything you know when you don't try to when when you don't have to box something in and your box doesn't have to look like someone else's and just to realize that there's a place in the world for everyone and 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 i appreciate you writing a book like this i, I just really am Thank you. Well, well, thank you. And it was really written for people like me who very early on just could not get behind that notion of God and thought, am I ever going to be able to recover? Yeah. And I guess my takeaway message is, yes, anyone can recover if there's that willingness yeah. and that desire paired with action to make changes and to also have even just a little glimmer of what could be better about your life or what might be a possibility, a possibility for you. Cause we can live our way into the answers. We can live our way into things becoming actual. If we grab hold of some possibilities and begin to work with them. I think it's, yeah. it's as basic as that. Yeah. Well, my sponsor always says you can't think your way into right living, but you can live your way into right thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got to have that action. Without the action, it's just kind of ornamental. You know, it just spins but doesn't really engage with anything. But when you begin to act differently, that's when you get different results. Yeah. And yeah. then even like with the self-love thing, you know, it's like 
you think talk, speaking of AA, you know, you got the nine step promises and when you first get in recovery or even seeking it or trying to find it, you're like, yeah, right. You know, like a lot of that stuff sounds freaking impossible, mm-hmm. man. And uh, I, I would remember like a couple of years in, I asked them, when does the self-love piece come in? Like, I am so not there. Like I oh, still yeah. struggle with the shame and the guilt. And he just told me, you know, Jason, you're doing all the right things. And he said, just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, the best way to build self-esteem is through esteemable actions. Mm. So I just kept doing service, man. And yeah. Over yeah. time, like you said, uh, Peg, you know, slowly it came, but it was very slow. So <laughs> can can I read one thing that is going to really sound like the nine step promises? And it comes from William James. Yes, and it's absolutely lovely. It's in response to, so what changes in someone who undergoes a conversion? What changes when someone's center has shifted and now burns with spiritual impulses at the center? So Mm. what happens in this process of transformation? William James writes, that whole raft of cowardly obstructions, which in tame persons and dull moods are sovereign impediments to actions, sink away at once. Our conventionality, our shyness, laziness, and stinginess, our demands for precedent and permission, for guarantee and surety, our small suspicions, our timidities, despairs, where are they now? Severed like cobwebs, broken like bubbles in the sky. Thank you, William James. Wow. There are the nine-step promises right there. It's wow. very descriptive language. I love wow. it. Very, very big, imagined, like visual. I, I'm I'm like that. Like I got a vivid imagination, okay. and I've always found like uh, visualization techniques and meditation and whatnot to be very helpful for me when I'm struggling with something. So right. it's so like I can almost visualize bubbles. it to break. Yeah, like I could. There goes that worry. Poof. Yeah. There yeah. goes that insecurity. Poof. It's it's I gone. Like it. Like I said, thank you, William James. That's not Peg O'Connor. That was Peg O'Connor citing William James, who William James, if you tear a page of his reading, writing, it'll bleed because he's just so infused in his work. And that's why he's just so wonderful to read. So that's my my recommendation for reading is William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. It's a treat. It's huge, but it's a treat. Well, thank you. I love it. So I'm willing to bet that Peg O'Connor's got some uh, pretty mind-blowing <laughs> quotes or excerpts. You want to? Do you have something in mind you can share with us? Something that you—that's your original. Uh, That—that's my original. Hold on, let me see if I can find something here. Um, la, 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 on the spot, <laughs> yeah. I'll be like David Bowie and Queen under pressure. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. That is just one of the best songs ever. I saw Foo Fighters do a cover of it a couple of years ago, and it was super awesome. I went because my uh, co-host on my podcast, The Way Out Podcast, he had an extra ticket and invited me. And I was not a big Foo Fighters fan before that show, but they put on an amazing show, and now I'm a fan. <laughs> okay, so I, I found something to read. And, and for me, I want to really have a living attitude of gratitude and not grievance because oftentimes when I was drinking, I was just full of grievances. Like, you know, why are my siblings getting this? Or, you know, why, 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 you know, call the wambulance. (laughs) 
That's from my friend Mary Beth, by the way, the wambulance. I love yeah. that. Um, so, you want so some here's, French cries? How about a wine again? There you go. So, so this is me on, on Grateful People. Grateful people see plenitude where others might see scarcity. While realities and actualities present challenges, they also present opportunities. Some of these opportunities may be unwanted, but there they are. So a person may be grateful for an opportunity, even if it doesn't pan out for her in the way she hoped. She also may be grateful for the opportunity to reach for something she had never considered. Operating from gratitude may enable a person to take some risks in the knowledge that she may not get what she wants. She may have confidence in herself that she'll be okay with whatever happens. And in the process, she may gain good experience that will serve her well later and help her achieve new goals. Gratitude enables a person to be more willing to live on possibilities and maybes and take actions where the results are uncertified. Gratitude expands a person's world, making it possible to have contact with something more or something bigger. So, so that, that was yeah. That's a Peg O'Connor, right? There. Yeah. <laughs> so gratitude, yeah. gratitude expands you. It expands the world. It makes connections where there weren't any before. And you know, any the reality check for me, the check I give myself is if if I do start getting in that you know wambulance mood, I think why am I acting this way? I have so much for which I ought to be grateful. And so then I got to make sure I don't just, you know, beat myself up over that because that's just an old habit. But to say, okay, now how does this, how does this new awareness make me change my actions? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that as well, that that's your uh, instant response is that self-introspection, because typically when I'm doing the same thing, a tool that I learned that works great is, you know, to make a gratitude list because Mm -hmm. then you flip your perspective. You know, I remember that I get to have these problems today, right? These problems are so much different than the ones I would be dealing with if I was still in active use, (laughs) you know? And, And I know, I know like, Two, another thing that I was taught is that we're only responsible for the effort, not the outcome. Hmm. And that the, the the idea of recovery is to get to a place where you will be okay regardless of yes. the outcome. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, and that kind of security to know that I will be okay, even if I yes. can't imagine what that okayness looks like, that I will be okay. So what I know about myself, I'll make a reference to gymnastics, even though I have never... <laughs> been a gymnast in my entire life because I'm a big girl, but I know that I will not always stick the landing. I know I may not always land on my feet. I may land flat on my ass, but what I know is that I will get up, not because of my superheroic strength, but one, I know how to ask for help. I know how to put my yeah. hand out and I'll get up and I will be okay. Yes. And sometimes always, I guess I would say, never mind. Sometimes being okay what an absolute victory it doesn't mean i don't feel pain it doesn't mean i don't suffer it doesn't mean bad things that happen no all of that happens that's part of what it means to be human it would be unnatural to hope that they didn't happen or do everything in your power to make sure they didn't happen but i will be okay and that's for me is something that i have to tether myself to at times when things are really really rough i'm okay i will be okay i will be okay 
that I will be okay is as real as anything else, including that fear. I mean, to know that you'll be okay is one way to counter that fear thought that I mentioned earlier. Yes. Yes. You don't, I don't know why, but you just reminded me of this. So I pulled it up. I'm going to read it. This is Theodore Roosevelt. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the door doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best in the end knows triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like that bravery. And what gives you that bravery, right? It's that gratitude. It's it's that delayed gratification that you've gotten from continuing to try and not give up, you know? Yeah. And, and trying to be sober is an act of bravery. Yes. Living in recovery is a whole series of acts of bravery. It, it, it takes courage to say, I'm going to look at these things head on. I'm not going to numb. I'm not going to try to escape. I'm not going to try to deny them, but I am actually going to try to meet reality. Yeah. And respond to it and not just react to it. Because there's a world of difference between reacting and responding. And yes. in recovery, we learn how to respond, not just react. And it is a world. It is a whole, like, it's thing after thing. It's a total journey to, mm -hmm. to harness the, and cultivate those skills. I yep. think it's it's important to know that, you know, it takes a lot of guts and then to sustain recovery mm -hmm. in a society that's so escapist where it's, it's like against the grain, not to drink, you know, it's against the grain, maybe not to smoke weed or whatever. So uh, to be able to say no and, you know, and stand by your convictions with that is, is hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> it's good. Y'all, my computer's about to die. So before it does, when That's it does. That's the message from the universe then. <laughs> it has been awesome, awesome to oh, share this It's been this great. Space Thank you, all of you. Thank awesome, you for, for having this wonderful Thursday night session. What a great yeah. thing to do. It has been awesome. And we I love have, you guys. We had so many squirrel moments and sidebars, <laughs> and we really delved into some stuff that probably none of us thought we would even talk about tonight. I'm That's so the fun part of it, right? Did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Gratitude, gratitude for all of you and you. Yeah, thank and you for coming. Yes, this was awesome. Yeah, I'm pleasure so meeting you, Peg. So really. Oh, pleasure. Most pleasure's it. all mine. You got to well, catch Brett, the replay, that's Brett. Why you, yeah, that's why you. Oh, I'm going it. to. I'm definitely going to. I know. This is awesome. Awesome. That's your cue, you big boy. Was Take it over, bud. Don't let me miss this part. Get to it. I'm getting it. I'm getting I love it. it. It's all I love it. Bang. Thank you guys for everybody that tuned in tonight. If you are watching us on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe to the channel. Turn on your notifications so you know when we go live, which is every Thursday night. 
I'm going to go out of order because Elsie's computer is about to die. Elsie, you want to tell us about your show? Absolutely. This is Nourishment for the Recovering and Rediscovering Soul. Turn into the Recovery Soul Food Podcast every Saturday night live at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you. Nice. Good job. Jason, you want to tell us about your show? What's up? Uh, yeah, I'm Jason. I'm also the co-host of uh, the Way Out podcast. Me and my friend Charles LeVar bring it to you every week. And it's uh, we share powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics to help you find or jumpstart your own recovery. And then we also have a playlist exclusively on Spotify. It is songs that symbolize recovery to all of our amazing guests. So check it out. Woohoo! Noise. Noise. I also do a podcast as well, Recovery Survey, and I have an upcoming episode with Pet with Peg coming out in a couple of weeks. That's actually how we connected. I met her uh, through Janine from the Chasing Heroin podcast. She was on there, and I texted her as soon as I finished listening to that episode, and I was like, you got to hook me up with Peg. Like The episode on Chasing Heroin blew my mind, and, and I got her email address, and then we did an interview, and then I was like, let's get Peg on the live stream because <laughs> we got to get more Peg. So that's kind of yes. how that happened. So stay tuned for that because I have an interview coming up with her and I'm really excited about that. Uh, we also started a new thing called the Recovery Revolution Podcast Network. And currently we have 19 or 20 different recovery shows that have all come together and we're promoting each other and help each other. And uh, it's really crazy because I didn't think it was going to blow up like that. But uh, we have a Facebook page. We have an uh, Instagram page. Um, there's a website, so search for that. If you're listening to this in the podcast form, there will be a little clickable link. Um, and we do release this broadcast tonight as a podcast as well. So here in a couple hours, whenever I get it put together, it'll go out and you guys can listen to the audio version as well. Uh, or you can find the video replay on Facebook or YouTube. So um i think that is everything so thank you guys for coming and watching or listening tonight thank you peg for coming on the show i'm super bummed that i was only here for a few minutes and i had i was running late from work and then technical difficulties with my computer and all kinds of crazy crap but i'm glad that i got to catch the end of it and i'm so grateful that you were able to come on the show tonight oh thanks for having me thank you thank you absolutely we will see you guys next thursday night with another guest until then remember progress not perfection no, no. <laughs>